Please join me in the reading from God's Word, reading from Matthew, Matthew 5, 8 through 12. You will recognize this as a portion of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you and be seated. Good evening. It's good to see everyone. I see that we have a few visitors with us. We're happy that you came and are worshiping with us this evening. Well, I started out this morning in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the inaugural address of Jesus. And we uh, there's nine of these Beatitudes, and we got through uh, five of them. So we have these four, and the four that Danny just read is what we will consider tonight and go over. You know, we had an elders deacon meeting today, and I thank those men for the work that they do in there, and they do a lot of work in there. It's mostly unseen and uh, unpraised, but they do fine work. But I, I just thought about the whole day, really, from the the scripture reading to the men waiting on the table to uh, the some. I, I don't even know who did the bread today, but it was in such a beautiful package, and I saw it being passed out to the uh, to our visitors. And you ladies do such a fine job on that. I went down the uh, hallway, and I was talking with Nadine. We were looking at some of the, the bulletin boards there that, that tell what we do. And there's just so many things that go on behind the scene. And I thank you all. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you. It's what a functioning church should be doing, isn't it? And we all make up when you get to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. It's, it, it, Paul talks about a body. He talks about this body, our fingers and our, our, our hands and then our arms and then our legs and what would, be, what would we be of a body if we're missing any of those parts? It would be something missing from the body, wouldn't it? I'm certainly glad that you do your part and, and do it so well, and I thank you for it. Well, this morning we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. What a sermon. Three chapters recorded in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, it no doubt was uh, puzzling to the people. They had heard things that they had never heard before. And uh, it, on our first uh, reading of it, we should too. It should be amazing. It is uh, living in a, uh, quote, Christian nation, or at least with the concepts of Christianity, so many of these things come into play. And uh, we're fortunate to be able to study these tonight. And so we'll start there in, in verse 8. We, uh, we went through the others and we started there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, that's an easy one. Some of these needed uh, some uh, explanation, poor in spirit and uh, meek, certain things like that. But a pure heart, we can understand that. If I said, listen, you're not going to believe this, but out there in that front lawn is pure snow. You'd know what I was talking about, wouldn't you? It'd be free of contaminants, wouldn't it? It would be... uh, it wouldn't have grease, and it have, wouldn't have leaves and trash and dirt. And it's pure snow, and you know it would be uh, it would be beautiful, and it would be white, and it would not be uh, affected by things that would be after it would lay there for three or four days. 
Well, this is talking about a pure heart. Who in here would not long for a pure heart? You know, we're stained so often by the world and the things that we see in the world that I wish we had more of a pure heart than we do. But it says the pure in heart, they're going to see God. And I know that's something that appeals to us all. We do want to see God face to face, don't we? Don't you want to look upon God? Moses did, and he, he never got to. He got to see the backside of God, but it was enough to get him through that tumultuous job he had. But with the pure in heart, and I would strive to be that for us all, we'll see God. In John 5 and 37, there Jesus says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've never heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And here these were in John 5, these were the men of the day, the religious men of the day. And who are they talking to? They're talking to God. They're talking to God in the flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah that's come into the world. And arguing with him about matters that they know nothing about. He has been, he came from God. He was in the presence of God. He is God. And yet here these men are. Arguing and telling him how he was wrong and how his concepts are wrong in him, God. And he says to them a very true statement. You've never seen him. You've never seen his form. Neither have you ever heard his voice. And he could go on to say, but I have. I have been in his, in his presence throughout eternity and I'm going back to him. But do you see how ludicrous that was for them to argue with God about God when he is God? And he's the word of God, John 1, 1. He represents the word, that, that aspect of God, his powerful word that created all things. That's who Jesus was. But it says the pure in heart, and that's what we want to be. We want to adhere to these beatitudes. But the pure in heart, unlike these men, they will see God. Do you ever think about seeing God? I do. How awesome that will be. To see our creation, creator and to see him face to face. Well, the pure in heart, they will. Well, the heart, let's look at that. It might need a little explanation. I don't think that it's lost in translation even after these many years. The heart is used in the Bible for the will, the choices. And so to be pure in heart means the decision one makes, the desire one has, the thought and intentions of the will. And they're not undermined by sin. That one, uh, but it's a will that is uh, pleasing to God. From the pure heart comes only good things, acts of love and mercy and desires for righteousness, for justice and for decisions that please God. Oh, to have a pure heart, that's what we should all want. It's what we should all strive to have. When we experience a new birth, we've died to the old heart and we should have a new heart, a pure heart, one that's getting purer every day. In Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus quoting Isaiah 29, 13, he says, The people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You know, there's a lot in that. It says, with their mouth. They say wonderful things about me and with their lips. But their heart, and that's the will, that's the mind, that's the essence of who we are. Their heart is far from me. And why? 
Scott Shoemaker said something. I don't think I've ever heard it put in that terminology like you did a while ago, and I'll never forget it either. He said, as he was praying a while ago, he said, the, uh, the God that created us, not the God that we created. That's what these people were doing. They created their own God. With their lips, they said wonderful things, but their heart was far from him. And, and so they create this own, their own mind. And think about the religious world today, what it does. No, I don't like this. Let's take these 13, these 13 books here that I think are old and archaic. Let's throw them out, and let's create a new God in our own mind. But what does it say there? Their worship is in vain. It's lip service, and it serves them no good to do that. But so many people, they worship God, not with a pure heart, a heart that has uh, uh, ulterior motives, one that's selfish, one that wants to do what they want to do. And they worship and they say good things, and that sounds great. But according to God's word, it's vain, vanity. It counts for nothing. It's just going through a process, just going through uh, the motions, but it's not getting them anywhere. The heart makes... Our breaks us what's in our heart. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. And you know, in your spiritual treasure, what is that? What's your hopes and desires for your spiritual life? What is, what's your adherence to God's word? How do you really feel about it? You can tell me, I can tell you anything we want. We can uh, do pretty good with lip service. But the heart tells it all. Acts 5 Verses 3 and 4, listen to this. But Peter said to Ananias, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Look what his lips said and then look what his intentions were. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What he did, everybody was, you know the story, everybody was selling their land. They had all things in common. They were under tremendous persecution. And you know, when you're under a lot of persecution, it would be no day different today if it was in some kind of cataclysmic event going on. We're all here. Well, our possessions and assets, they don't mean much if they're all be going to be lost anyway or turned over to uh, some foreign country. So that what they were doing was selling those assets pulling the money to support each other and to support the church so that it might exist. And, uh, uh, you know, this guy sold a million-dollar piece of property and gave it all in and, and honor and glory to him for it. And this person did the same thing. Well, they wanted that honor and glory too, but they didn't want to give up the million dollars. They wanted to give up like half of it. But to look less honorable, let's say we gave it all up. And that's what was going on. And Peter points out very clearly, it was yours to begin with. You didn't have to do any of that. And then uh, when, you, when, you, when you did do it, why did you lie about it? You did it to honor yourself. But in fact, you, you conjured this up in your heart. And you didn't lie to me and you lied to God. And if you read that story of him and his wife, it didn't end well for them at all. It brought fear upon the first century church as it would us today. Well, this is an example of an evil heart. But the heart can be a wonderful thing, too. Turn with me in the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts 10. Now, here's an example of a pure heart, a good heart, a good-hearted man, we might say. 
And when we get to Acts, let's start in, uh, in chapter 10. And let's look at the first six verses. Six verses. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. Now there's a good man there. He was a uh, centurion. He was a Roman. An Italian. He was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. Uh, Some said he was a proselyte. I, I don't see that. I just see that he was a devout man, a good man, a righteous man. You know, there are people that may not understand God like we do. They may not have been enlightened. They may not have obeyed the truth. They might not have been exposed to it yet in their life. But they live good lives. And you know people that just automatically and naturally live good, wholesome, just lives. There are people that do that even without God, without knowing God, because they're good people. They have a pure heart. And who are we to say how God works providentially? But he says those kind of people, through his providence... They'll see my face. They'll see God. So we see this wonderful man, and we know his story. Peter did come to him, and he did tell him what he must do to be saved. And he and his household did that. And we've had, uh, this is the uh, first Gentile family to come into the kingdom of God. Uh, And so this is a wonderful story. But I want you to know that was a fine man. That was a good man, a good man, Cornelius. Well, and let's go back to our text in Matthew 5. In verse 9, we read the following. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, Colt makes a pistol, and ironically, guess what it's called? A peacemaker. But that's uh, in a very odd way that it would make peace, isn't it? That's not the kind of peace it's talking about. Peacemakers. Oh, and I've got a lot to say about it. I'll never have enough time to say all that I'd like to. Because I'm going to step on all of our toes with this one. How many times have we had the opportunity? We had an opportunity, and it was right before us to be peacemakers. And instead, we threw gasoline on the fire. We've all done it, haven't we? Peacemakers... What do you want to be called more than the Son of God? Wouldn't you like to be called that? That's what we refer to ourselves, our children of God. But peacemaker, what a badge, what an attribute to have. I am a peacemaking person. And uh, and we've got some scripture to look at there. This is interesting. Well, we have a commandment too. Paul in Romans 12, 17 through 19, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. 
You know, we're called to be something. In a cast iron world, you know, if you cook, you know what I'm talking about. Cast iron, uh, it's been around for hundreds of years. People have cooked in cast iron pots and pans. But I bet you haven't been cooking in one lately, unless you want cornbread or something specific. Because food sticks to cast iron. We're called to be Teflon people. You know, the food slides off Teflon, doesn't it? We're in this world. We deal with problems all the time in our workplace, in our families, even in the church. We have to deal with problems. But it shouldn't stick to us. We shouldn't get mired in this world's problems that are going to pass away. We're supposed to be peaceful. And how do you... How do you achieve peace? Well, it's not just a, a light bulb that goes off and it says, peace, peace. I, I want there to be peace. No, it takes work. And what it does, and I've seen people that were so good at this, soon as a problem is presented, well, your mouthy people, they start throwing the kerosene on the fire, but you see some people, and they're meditating. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking. Mm-hmm. You know what they're doing? They're looking for solutions. They're looking for something that might be helpful, something that can help this situation. Help find a solution to bring it down. Oh, we could do a better job of that, couldn't we? You know, we have ambassadors that we send all over the world. You know, anybody, you could send anybody and say, go over there and get a war started. That's pretty easy to do. But it takes a really gifted man or woman who has tact and diplomacy to go over there and to quell the situation. Let's, let, let, let's work out a compromise. Let's, let's find some solution. Because we want peace. Peace is a sign of a civilized nation, is it not? That we live in peace with each other. Well, we have scriptures on that. Philippians 4.2. Paul writes to two women. And they're at odds with each other. They're fighting. It's come back to him. And this is a prison epistle. Paul could say, you know, y'all are fighting, but I'm in prison myself. But he doesn't. He He's looking for a solution. He's looking for some way to help this. And in Philippians 4, 2, he says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I want to look at that. That's just a short sentence, but I want to look at that a minute. He could have said, I implore Euodia and Syntyche to do that, but he didn't do that. He said, I, he, he stops. He says, I implore you, Euodia. And I implore you, Syntyche, that you be more in mind of the Lord. He made that very personal. The, he, implored, uh, he, he made it personal for both of them. I implore you. He could have said, I implore you both, but he did. I implore you and named her. And then I implore you, and I named her. And what he's saying there, and I want us to be thinking this way too, because life is short. We've got just this little trial time that we live here, and then we're going to be judged before a righteous judge. Now, you keep this in mind. They had a problem, and you've had problems too, and I have too. Maybe with each other, I don't know, but certainly in life. And with these two women, he says, uh, he's saying it like this. You have problems, and they need to be worked out. But don't let your problem that you're having with each other be so intense that it affects your relationship with each other in the Lord. Because that's a higher calling, isn't it? And I'm going to tell you something. You don't want to stand before a righteous judge and say, I had a problem with my brother. I had a problem with my sister. 
We shared the greatest thing in the world, our love and devotion to God, you, who died for both of us. But we let this earthly problem get out of hand so much that it affected the bond we had in Christ. I don't want to say that to God, and you don't either. And he implores them to straighten this out, okay? That might take someone being a bigger person. Do you know what I mean by that? A bigger person? You know, a bigger person sometimes says, you know, I don't believe I'm wrong in this. I believe they are. But I'm going to appeal to my own maturity. I'm going to appeal to my own sense of love and fairness and devotion to my Lord. And uh, I'm going to call them and say, perhaps I was wrong. I'll put it on myself. I'm going to be the bigger person. And and I want you to know something. That other person on the other end of the phone in that scenario, they're not going to say, oh, okay, he came to his senses and he understands that he was at fault. No, they're probably going to know that you're being the bigger person and you're going to shame them by doing the right thing. Apparently, and and it's been in Scripture for 2,000 years for us to read, apparently their squabble, their quarrel was of such maybe veracity, well, it, that Paul wrote about it, of course. But he even goes further. He, uh, he uh, solicits help. In verse 3, that was in verse 2. In verse 3, he says, And I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Help out in this matter. He needed some help. He wanted, Paul wasn't there. He was in prison. But he wanted those people there in Philippi. And you help out. And he names people. You go to these ladies. You help them with this. I solicit your help. You have a responsibility to help them work this out. And uh, he wants them to look for solutions. He wants for them to defuse this problem. Remember, what's the payoff? To be sons of God. And so he asked them to do that. I ask you, and I ask this of myself too, with the idea of how short our lives are and how certain judgment is and how that the world looks at us too. We're a light on a hill and we're the salt of the earth. When you see your brother and sister in a quarrel that shouldn't be, don't throw gas on it first of all. Please don't do that. Don't stir it up. Don't make it worse. But why don't you be the bigger person and help find a solution? Why don't you be the bigger person and help them work it out? I think we have a biblical example for that. In Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this at the conclusion of that wonderful epistle. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are the household of faith. We are to do good to humanity. We can't get on a mountain somewhere and build a a cage around us and never deal with people and think that that's pleasing to God. Our work is in the kingdom of men. Out here where men and women live, our job on this earth is to do good to all men and especially to those that share our faith. Because remember, what do we want to be called? Sons of God. 
Well, in Matthew 10, we see another beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in this fallen world, when people try to promote peace or champion righteousness or live a life of gentleness and meekness, they find opposition. One would think that such a life would attract people to the kingdom of God, but it doesn't. And it tells us clearly that mankind is not only alienated to God, but is in rebellion to God. The world wants a justice system, but it wants it on its own terms, one with privileges, indulgence, power, and last of all, unaccountability. But that's the kingdom of men. That's not the kingdom of God. You know, there's sayings, and you know, they, they sound cute or quirky when you hear them, but they have a horrible meaning. And, as, you know, and you'll see some temptation out there that you know better. You know you don't have any business for that as a Christian. And you say, well, I think I'll refrain from that. I, I think I'll pass. And what do people say? Only the die, only the good die young. You ever heard of that? Only the good die young. You got We got to get it. You know, where, go for the gusto. There's uh, doing others before they do unto you. No good deed goes. Uh, 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 what is it? No good deed goes unpunished. Instead of the golden rule of doing others is had you do them. They said, don't do a good deed because it, it make cl- people cling to you and want more. No good deed goes unpunished. And we have all these cliches that we say. But you know what it's really saying? If you really listen to those words. You better get after it. You better enjoy life. You better, uh, if your bucket list is fun and entertainment and you haven't filled it up, you better get after it because guess what? You're going to die. And what they don't say that they ought to add to it is because you're going to die and it's all going to be over. But it's not going to be over. This is the shortest dispensation of time we'll ever live right here. The 80, 100 years that we live on the earth. That's the shortest time because our spiritual life is eternal. It's forever and forever. And this is the trying fields. This is the, this is the testing field. This is what echoes through eternity, what we say and we do and we act now. And uh, you be right. That's what a righteous life means. You know what it means? Live right. When you see injustice, call it for what it is. That's unjust. That's not just. Yeah, but the majority think it is. I don't care. That's not right. Stand up for what's right. You know, we're, I think personally we're living in a world today where you can do that with less persecution than ever before. You know, people want to talk about, well, the, the 30s or the 40s. Well, I didn't live there, and you did maybe, but I'm telling you, um, I'm not persecuted like these people were. I can tell you that. We're not persecuted today because we want to live right. One of the things is I hope that most of us, our friends and the people that we associate with, and especially our families, I hope are righteous too, righteous in like we are. And, you know, they say birds of a feather flock together, don't they? You know, the light doesn't have much to do with darkness and vice versa. I hope your life is such that you're living around people that are like you and that you're all trying to live a righteous life and you're trying to get to heaven. But as you've seen, you know, um, I could quote things in the news. I'm not, I'm going to refrain from it, stay away from it. But I see things in the news sometimes and I think, well, the right thing to do would be this, but you've got 10,000 people that want to sign a petition and say, we don't want to do that. We want to live wicked. We want to live 
the way we want to live. Well, he says that uh, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteous sakes. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 15, we read, and who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and with fear. Don't be haughty about it. Don't be arrogant. But with meekness, when someone asks you, why do you live a righteous life? Why do you live a different life than we do or they do or whatever? You be humble. You be meek. And you tell them. But that fear part, I've often thought about that. And with fear. You know what fear that is? Fear of God. Fear of his judgment. If someone asked me today, why do you live the life you do? Why don't you live this hellish life like the rest of us? Well, I don't choose to do that. God doesn't want that. I want to live a righteous life. And let me tell you another thing, friend. Please listen to me. You may not believe this, but I do. I believe that if I lived that life that you're uh, asking about, if that was the way I'd go, then I'm going to face a wrathful God in judgment. And I can't do it. My knees won't stand up the thought of it. I don't want to stand before God that I know can be wrathful. You may not know God, but I know him and I don't want to stand. I fear God. In a godly way, I fear him, and I don't want to fall. I want God's love. I don't want to fall into his wrath. And we're supposed to tell people when they ask what our defense is for the why we live our lives the way we do. You know, you ought to be more than willing to do that because they certainly will tell you their philosophies on why they live that way, and they don't even have a good reason, but you do. You've got an eternal reason. Be bold in a humble way, and tell them the reason why you live the way you do. Because don't forget what the reward is. In the end, it's the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 10, 28, the Lord told he was sending out his 12 on a very uh, important mission. It's called the limited commission. But they were, he tells them, he said, you could be thrown in synagogues, you could be scourged, you could be whipped. If a house won't receive you, shake the dust off and move on. If you give give that house peace, you stay there. And uh, there's some things going on there, and he tells them, uh, some of you, and now I don't think they did in that first commission, but certainly in their lifetime it befell all of them. You're going to be dragged before majesty. People are going to turn over their sons and daughters, and and, uh, there's going to be men portraying each other over what? Over this, over this right here that we're studying. And he said, but you fear not. You fear not. What, what you're going to say will be given to you. And he's, he's really trying to, trying to fire them up because they're on a mission that's going to cost them inevitably their life. But in Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of himself, speaking of God. You know, God controls the final destiny of all men because he made us, he created us, and he controls that. Then there's some examples given in in 2 Peter. First of all, the angels. God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to to be reserved for judgment, 2 Peter 2, 4. 2 Peter 2, 5, that first world, the ancient world, and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, 
one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world and ungodly. In verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Verse 7, Lot. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was uh, uh, oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented in his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. I can only imagine. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the just under punishment for the day of judgment. You want to live righteous? He'll help you with your temptation. You want to live wicked? Get after it. But remember this, he's going to bring you into judgment for it. But you keep doing good, be righteous, live holy. It's good here and it's good now. It's what makes the kingdom of heaven all that it will be. And there will... uh, and. all that will be, and we'll have that in common with you. Everybody that's in heaven, that's one thing they'll have in common with you. They live righteous lives too. And that's the commonality that I'm looking for. All right, well, the last one is in verse 11. It looks like the same as verse 10, but it's not. Let me read it. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, the reason it's different, the first, uh, the beatitude above it says, for righteous living. And I pointed out there are people that live righteous in that they live right. They don't adhere to evil, excuse me, evilness or bad things. They don't do those things. But this is talking about for his sake, doctrinal issues, what Jesus' commandments are. And if we stick with those, we're going to be persecuted. And they were very much so. Um, I thought about something. There was, and I'll be brief, there was a woman, I'm not going to get into her name, but there was a woman that killed her husband. Her husband was a minister of the gospel in Tennessee. And she murdered him, she shot him. And... um, you know the history of that story. She shot him. She was kiting checks, and she let her finances really get out of way. And he was the type. He he was hard on her about that. He didn't want her spending money unwisely, and that's one aspect. I know there's a lot of different sides to coins and different stories, but there was a um, there was a news anchor, a woman named Nancy Grace on HLN, and she she basically just said, "Well, he had it coming." Because they are, uh, that's a cult anyway. Now, how could she speak about the church that way, not knowing any more about it than that? In the 1980s, there was a woman that was caught in adultery. And the church in Oklahoma City withdrew from her. And uh, she sued and she won. Or they settled with her. And uh, I remember that, in, it was, I think it was in 1984 on the Phil Donahue show. A faithful brother, Garland Elkins, went on, that st- went on that show and defended our doctrine, the doctrine of church discipline. And that crowd acted like a bunch of baboons. I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, it was unbelievable. It was a Jerry Springer type thing. I mean, that crowd, if they could have, would have tore his limbs off his body. And, you know, that's sticking up for the sake of Christ. And the, no doubt that uh, both of those incidents, there was much persecution. But these people were persecuted unto death. 
this first century when this was written. Who knows what tomorrow holds for our precious children? What kind of persecution will they go under? I don't know. But we're, we're to remain faithful. Jesus said in Luke 13:34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Every prophet that came preaching the Messiah and preaching the good news of God, you know what their reward was? They were killed. They were murdered. They were martyred for the sake of God. In Acts 7.52, that fiery sermon by Stephen, and under inspiration, by the way, he when he got going, he said, which of the prophets, 7.52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, for whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. Well, if you think that didn't go over well, it did, and they killed him too. We're not greater than our master. If they persecute him, we will also be persecuted. There are three men recognized by God himself who were more righteous than any other men that lived on this earth. And those men were Noah, Daniel, and Job. That's found in Ezekiel 14 and 14. But wouldn't you love to be on that short list? Wouldn't you love to have your name on that short list that you were that God said you were more faithful than all other men. You had those three. But would you want to go through the persecution that these men went through? And I've studied their lives, and no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. But maybe through persecution is how we're known to be faithful. Maybe that's when our true test of metal is put to, uh, put to it. When we defend our Lord, and it seems we stand alone, we're not. Look at the very end of it. You're in the best company of all. All these great men that went before you. The wells that we drank out of that they dug. The shoulders that we got on that they stood tall. They were persecuted and unto death. And when you find yourself persecuted for the sake of Christ, you're in good company. Well, that's the lesson tonight. It's been my pleasure this morning and this evening to bring you these nine Beatitudes. They're uh, very powerful because the Lord spoke them. And... Uh, I'm sure it was very powerful on that day on that hillside so many years ago to that multitude that gathered there to hear that. But we can hear it too. Every time we pick up God's word, we can read it and we can see those wonderful stories that changed their lives. And I hope that it changes ours. Are you a Christian tonight? You can be. Jesus asked if we'd come repenting of sin and confessing his name and being baptized. Titus 3, 5 says that water washes away our sins. We have a church here that loves everyone in it. We need to be better people. We need to remember that the things that we've gone over, the pure in heart, be a peacemaker, be righteous, and stick up for our Lord's name. We can help you in any way tonight. We stand ready and willing. Come together as we stand and sing.